My name is Robbie Cortez, discipleship pastor here at C3. It's great to be with you guys as we're continuing on our series through the book of Revelation. We'll be finishing up uh, chapter one this morning, but before we get to our text, I just kind of want to recap how we got to where we are. And so what we've seen is that the apostle John is in exile on the island of Patmos, and this was a a form of heavy persecution. Uh, And I love what the New Testament shows us about this apostle. He was one of the first disciples that Jesus called to walk with him, not only was he one of the 12, but he was one in the inner circle, the inner three, and he saw things, he was privileged to see things that the others didn't get to see. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, We see in Scripture he had an intimacy with Christ uh, that that we should want, that we should desire, like sat next to him, leaned into his bosom. Uh, He witnessed Christ's crucifixion. Uh, He was there. He witnessed his resurrection, and he witnessed his ascension. And so from that time onward, like decade after decade after decade, this brother's just on fire, like a pillar to the church, an encouragement to the church, an elder, a leader, a pastor, Uh, his life's getting threatened, and he's like, oh, well, I'm going to keep telling people about Jesus. He's getting beaten, and he's celebrating that he's worthy to be beaten for Jesus' sake. And so he's on this island in an attempt to be shut up, if you will, and to that, I think God just kind of laughs and says, you can't stop my bro, John, like I'm still going to do something amazing with him, even on this deserted island. And that's where we're at. And so last week we saw that this voice, this thunderous voice speaks to him. And what we're going to see is that voice is coming from Jesus. And this voice instructs him to write specific things to seven specific churches. And I think that there's probably something familiar to this voice, but also it's like a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet. It's like a trumpet. So it's pretty loud and also a little bit different. But John starts turning, and that's where our text picks up in verse 12. He turns to see the voice, and he sees Jesus, but this is not the Jesus he's accustomed to. Like, this is not your grandma's Jesus. Like, we're all accustomed to some portraits of Jesus throughout the years, like maybe Jesus, uh, meek and mild, walking through the meadows. He's got, like, head and shoulders hair uh, with his sheep, maybe even has a sheep on his shoulder. Uh, in some cases, the sheep is smiling, which is a little bit creepy. Um, but, but this is not the Jesus that John turns to see. And so what I want us to keep at the forefront of our minds as we look at this beautiful description of who Christ is is that this is a book primarily revealing who Christ is, not what he looks like. There are a lot of imagery, there's a lot of imagery used throughout this book, and sometimes we can get caught up in this picture, in this portrait of Jesus, but it's not meant for us to have an understanding of what Jesus physically looks like, but to understand his nature, understand his character, who he is, and what he is like, especially with relation to the church. And so as we look at all of these beautiful images of Christ, that's what we should be asking ourselves. What is this telling me about who he is? And and, and heads up to kind of whet your appetite. Scholars, theologians agree that this is perhaps the most beautiful description of Christ in all of Scripture. So that's what we have in front of us. It's important to remember this because if if we get caught up in the portrait and the imagery, then at best what we maybe have is like mighty morphin power Jesus. 
right? Like bronze feet activate. Like that's not what's, tr- what, what's being communicated here. And so before we get into it, I want to kind of give a little bit of a brief word on, on apocalyptic literature because that's what we have before us. It's a genre that perhaps we're not so used to. And it uses symbolism, colors to represent specific things. And so we are a very uh, facts-based culture. When we read things, we just want to read an account, just tell me the facts, tell me what it was like. And, and that's not necessarily what passages like this are doing. They're, they're less cerebral and more imaginative in nature. And so uh, here's an example of what I'm talking about. is In the Gospels, in Luke chapter 1 and 2, we have an account of Jesus' birth. We're all familiar with it. We went through it in December. And so the story goes, Gabriel appears to Mary, right? Mary receives the message. Mary and Joseph wind up in Bethlehem. These events happen in sequential order. Uh, There's some wise men. There's some shepherds, so on and so forth. And then if we embrace Matthew's gospel, like he brings 42 factual evidences of Jesus' lineage into the picture. And we receive that. That's beautiful. That is glorious. But in the book of Revelation, there is another telling of Jesus' birth that looks a little bit different, right? So in, in this account, like there's this woman who's clothed with the sun. So we're off to a weird start already. And then to go further, she's standing on the moon. She's got a crown that's no ordinary crown. It's a crown of 12 stars and she's in labor about to give birth to a baby. And then comes this dragon ready to eat the baby. Like, is this getting weird for you guys? The baby is is birth, caught up to God, safe there. Dragon is angry, starts waging war on the woman. She's given wings like an eagle to fly into the desert. She's kept, guarded, safe. Dragon's like really angry, starts spitting water out of his mouth like a river. So this is a big lizard, starts flooding the earth. Earth opens up, drinks the water, and she's protected. Dragon rages war on her other children. How's that for a Christmas play? Like who wants to sign up to be the dragon? Careful, no hands, great. That that was one over here. Jordan, talk to your son, man. (laughs) Same story told in a different way. And and so apocalyptic literature, what it's aimed to do is actually hit our imagination on purpose. to, To fuel us and to energize us in a new and in a fresh way. Way And so uh, there's a commentator on this, John J. Collins. I want to help us understand this so that we can get the full picture of what's being communicated here. John J. Collins says, an apocalypse or, or a revelation is intended to interpret the present earthly circumstances in light of the supernatural world and of the future and to influence both the understanding and the behavior of the audience. That's what's intended here. To take this a little bit further, uh, Daryl Johnson says this, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put in words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery goes beyond the intellect, through the emotions, into the imagination. It's my favorite part. Informing the intellect and igniting the emotions. Essentially, what these guys are telling us is that apocalyptic literature as a genre 
and specifically when it comes to biblical apocalyptic writings, is aimed to do something to us, to charge us and to energize us. And so I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that that's probably why authors like C.S. Lewis, when he writes Narnia, and J.R.R. Tolkien, when he writes Lord of the Rings, that's probably why those movies move us so much. Right, And so in Narnia, we understand that Aslan is this lion representing Jesus, and he starts roaring and raging war. And for me, I just want to start crying and yelling, like, for Aslan. And then I wasn't even angry a second ago, but now I want to punch something. Like, anybody there? I know I'm probably the only weirdo in here that gets geeked out by this. All right, so I have another scene uh, from uh, The Lord of the Rings. I have a slide, I think, for us this morning. So, so a lot of you know what's up right here, right? Right, we got good versus bad on the right side and the dark side. We got, it's not that clear, uh, but we got the, 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 the demons, the darkness, some weird creatures there. And on the left side, the good guys are kind of clothed in light as they're approaching the bad guys. The bad guys are like, oh, the light's so bright, kind of like the ones uh, behind all of you guys on me. And, and they clash and they fight and, and that energizes us. Right? When we see things differently, like for me, I start rolling up my sleeves and I'm like, man, you're coming after me? You're coming after my king? You're coming after my mind, my heart, my affections for Jesus? Like, let's go. Let's do this. You're coming after my wife? You're coming after my kids and their hearts and their their minds, my family, my church? Let's do this. Like some of you, it's not there, but some of you wanted to shout out like, thou shall not pass when that was up there, didn't you not? Go ahead, let it out, guys. You're being bashful this morning. Just wait till you get to your car. I'm sure you will yell at your steering wheel. These things do something to us. And so some of us even start wearing elf ears when it's not Christmas, right? Like you know who you are. Biblical apocalyptic literature does something to us. And so in this picture that we're about to see in Revelation 1, 12 through 20, It's aimed to do something to us, and it was aimed to do something to the seven churches that this letter was going to be circulating through, and what they're going to see is the exalted Christ, who he is in a more full understanding. This description is meant to energize our hearts and our passions for Jesus, and I had to think this morning, like, what kind of strength, what kind of comfort? What kind of reproof, what kind of passion for Jesus must this have been for these churches that were especially about to go through some persecution? It's meant to move them in a real and impactful way, and it's the same thing for us. C3, this letter may not have been written to us, but it was certainly written for us and preserved for us for 2,000 years. And so my heart's prayer this week uh, is that we would leave this place never the same transformed by the revealing of who Jesus is, transformed by his grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, working, living, moving, active in his church. And so let's go ahead and uh, read. Uh, We'll start out with verses uh, 12 through 16, and then we'll cover the other half uh, in a little bit when we get to that. So Revelation 1, starting at chapter, uh, verse 12. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so uh, what I want to do as we unpack that is kind of want to give you a a layout of of where we're going. So the first thing I want to look at is uh, this phrase, one like the Son of Man, because there's there's been a lot of confusion uh, in church history about what that means. So I want to help give a little bit of clarity. And then this is what we're going to see about Jesus. This is where we're going. We're going to see him as our priest. We're going to see his profoundness. We're going to see his permanence, his power, We're going to see him as our protector. We're going to see his perfection. And then we're going to see his praiseworthiness. And we by no means have time to go into all the details that are here for us. But like Seth encouraged us in week one, man, may all of us have hearts that are seeking to know God better through this book. Uh, That means giving ourselves to studying it even outside of Sundays. And Seth has some incredible resources. I have some incredible resources. We'd love to help you out on that journey. So please let us know however we can be helpful. Uh, But starting with this phrase, one like a son of man. When we look to the New Testament, this was Jesus' favorite title about himself. Like, it's mentioned around 81 times, and all but a few, it's Jesus referring to himself. And so there's two takes that I believe are wrong that have become very popular in our day. And one is from liberal theologians, which I think is like an oxymoron. Like, can you be a liberal theologian? But we'll just go with that this morning. Uh, Say that because Jesus didn't believe that he was God, he's trying to dispel any notion that he might be. So he's heavily emphasizing the fact that he is man. This is Jesus' attempt to prove that he is not God, but just a man. And of course, we would say that that is absolutely wrong. That is heretical. You no longer have Christianity at this point. But the problem is, is that evangelicals kind of adopt somewhat of a version of that. And so you might have heard this uh, in in your life, that when the Bible refers to Jesus as the Son of God, it's referring to his divinity, right? It's showing that he is God. And when it refers to him as the son of man, it's talking about his humanity. And while that might sound nice, that's not actually the meaning of the phrase. And so we're first introduced to this phrase in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. We'll go ahead and read that here. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so the Jews during Jesus' time, the scholars during Jesus' time, the priests, the high priests, all knew very well that the phrase son of man was loaded with messianic connotations, and they derived that from the book of Daniel primarily. And so here's, here's kind of proof, uh, a biblical proof, as to uh, the meaning of this phrase. You guys remember uh, Jesus' trial uh, before uh, the priests 
this unjust trial in the middle of the night. They're bringing all these accusations against him. And then finally they say, hey, do you have nothing to say about these things? Like, tell us, once and for all, are you the Son of God? And how does Jesus reply? He says, you have said so, but I say to you that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds of glory. And if the high priest knew that by Son of Man Jesus was saying, I'm just a guy like you, then they would probably have been happy at that point, right? Like, good, finally. But they tear their robes off and yell, blasphemy. What further need of witness do we have? You've heard him. And they crucified him for it. They knew that he was referring to himself every time that he called himself the Son of Man as Messiah. And so the first thing that John notices is the confirmation this is Messiah. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And, and what's interesting in John, uh, in this book of Revelation, says one like on to the Son of Man, or one like a Son of Man. And I think there was a familiarity when he saw this vision. Like, I, I see him, I recognize him, and yet he's completely unrecognizable. I see Jesus, but he's so glorious. He's so bright, he's so vibrant, he's so exalted that at the same time, I can hardly believe what I'm seeing. And here's some encouragement for us in that. One day, we will be like him. Do you, do you still think about that? Do you, do you meditate on that? That one day, we will be transformed to be completely and wholly like him, without sin. And, and that's not meant for us to like puff our chests up and say, yeah, look at me, but rather it's supposed to make us look at ourselves, our crimson stained cesspool selves, like fallen, broken, and see what Jesus does with that. He makes all things new, makes us white, makes, makes us pure, makes us glorious like him. And I love what C.S. Lewis talks about on that note. He says, if one day, perhaps, you and I could see one of our brothers and sisters, let's just say the weakest among us, and I'll put my name in the hat for that one, like the most broken dude who's always stumbling. He's a believer, but man, he just can't get it right. If you take the weakest Christian among us here this morning, and for a second we could get a glimpse of the future glory that he would have, all of us would probably want to fall down and worship that being if we could see the glory that they'll have one day in Christ. And I wonder, does that make you maybe see your brothers and sisters in a different light? Maybe we get weary with the weak, right? When, when Romans tells us that if we're strong, uh, we're to bear with the scruples of the weak. Like, let's do this practice. Why don't everybody just take a look around the room? I know this is a little bit weird. Uh, don't make eye contact maybe, uh, but just take a look around, right? Think about it. Your future brother and sister is going to be so like Christ that if we could see them right now, man, we might want to fall down and worship them. 
And Lewis kind of finishes that up with saying those who reject Christ will be so hideous, so dismarred, so ugly that only a nightmare could dream it up. This first picture of Christ, his glory, and what he's going to do for us. Next, we're going to see that in his clothing, he is our high priest. Verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This speaks, this speaks of Jesus' priesthood, that he is our great high priest, and the location of where he's at is really interesting. He's amongst, within the lampstands. And so in um, Exodus 25, uh, we're introduced to the instruction God gives for building these specific lampstands. I have a picture of one up here. It's called the menorah. Maybe. Um, there we go. I was going to have to act it out for you guys. Um, so we have a, a candle in the middle, and then they were instructed to have three prongs to the left and three throngs, three throngs uh, to the right. And it was the priest's job to uh, keep the oil on the lamp filled so that it continu can continue to burn all through the day. And it was meant to give light to the priest as they did work in the tabernacle, in the temple. But in this picture, Jesus reveals the candles as being the churches themselves, which is interesting because what we see here is that it is Christ himself who is upholding his church, who's tending to the oil so that her flame will not burn out. It is Christ alone who is upholding his bride. And what that speaks to me this morning Look, I never want to see Scripture through the lens of an American. Like, there's so much more going on. We've got to get out of our cultural eyes and see the big picture. But what that speaks to us, perhaps, as a church in America, is that as we see the culture around us continually pushing God out of our minds, God out of the picture, in the midst of, of, of chaos, of, of culture wars and political polarization, and it looks like it's getting really crazy out there and all these agendas we're wanting to be on top of, like in the midst of all that, Christ is keeping his church. Like, fear not. His church will be victorious. And, and here's the thing we have to get. His church will be victorious, not because you read a book, and not because you're savvy on all the agendas and what the vaccine future is going to look like. No, no, no. It is Christ alone, and we should be knowledgeable of these things, right? Be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And we should seek to influence every fabric of society, I believe, as believers, bringing the light of Christ into it. But it is Christ alone who is upholding his church, and this should encourage us here. And I believe it probably encouraged the churches who were about to endure heavy persecution, even to the point of death. Right To look out and see, like in Daniel, there is another one in the fire with me. He's not deserted us. He's not abandoned us. Like he's, he's here right, right now. His very spirit, his very presence is here among us. I wonder if that, if that changes our heart posture a little bit this morning. Maybe it changes how we get ready on a Sunday or, or the drive here. We come expecting him to meet us. We come expecting to behold him in his word. 
Fathers, I gotta ask this question, and man, I'm, I'm the first one who needs to hear this. Are you the priest of your home? Are you tending to the oil of your wife's heart and her affections for Jesus? Are you giving her a loving example of sacrificial love, an example of Christ? And I don't mean saying, you read the Bible today, woman? By the way, do not do that in a fight. <laughs> like, you're a little crabby today. You've been reading scripture. No, don't. Just trust me, don't do that. Are you tending to the oil of your children's affections for Jesus? Look, man, I'm excited for Rico to play baseball. But may those other things never take priority over me pouring into him a love for Jesus. I can't wait to share. We were talking about baseball cards on the way here. Like, I hope he likes baseball cards. I hope, man, I can't wait. I fantasize of his first Astros game this coming season. But, but man, may that fail, pale in comparison to what I give him about Jesus. Are you tending to the oil of the lamps in your house? Let's move on. In his wisdom, he is profound. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This is a, a remarkable statement. And if we don't get into it, we just think Grandpa Jesus. But, but this is remarkable because in Daniel chapter 7, a little bit earlier in verse 9 of, of what we read earlier, uh, we see God the Father described as the Ancient of Days. And this is the description of him in verse 9, specifically God the Father. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, and the hair of his head like pure wool. This is what John is saying, though. In Daniel, we see Son of Man and Ancient of Days as, as two different people, different distinctions. But in this revelation, they're one. Essentially, what he's showing us is God the Father and God the Son are one being. The Ancient of Days is Jesus. And the whiteness of his hair is representing his wisdom, his purity. And what that should speak to us is that we can trust him, right? Like his ways are not our ways, they're better than our ways. And so many times we want to be teenagers with God and think, man, I, I know you're saying this, but I really think I should go that way. When has that ever worked for you? When have you ever pursued your ways against God's and it's gone well for your soul or even in the physical and so we, as an American culture, we don't really reverence our elders, right? Our more seasoned people around us. Like, it's interesting. Like, increasingly so, we want to fight tooth and nail against the effects of aging. Like, turn on daytime television, man. It's all ads against that. Botox. I'm not picking on anybody who's done Botox here. But it's interesting that it's increasingly popular among 20-year-olds, 18, 19-year-olds, butylenum uh, toxins, like the word toxins literally in it, and people are like, if it makes me young, I don't care. Like, let's do it. We fight against it. We don't reverence aging, but Scripture does. Proverbs 16, 31, a white head is a crown of glory. Leviticus 19, 32, 
You shall rise up before the white head, funny name, and honor the face of an old man. Why? Because they've been there. They've lived some life. They have made mistakes, and from them we can and should glean wisdom, seeking their input, seeking their insight. And with Christ, well, he doesn't grow more wiser through the ages, but what this is showing us is that as the first and the last, he is infinitely wise. He is infinitely wise. Verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks of the penetrating insight and omniscience of Jesus, that in his fiery holiness, the true condition of every church and of every Christian is known. And what's interesting is that when we think about like the, the powerful, omniscient eye of Jesus, usually, if you're like me, your first like guttural reaction isn't joy, Right? Like as he pierces through every facade that we could possibly put on, as he looks through and exposes our heart open, exposes our mind with his omniscience, that usually uh, makes us feel like, oh no. Like I hope he doesn't see that. I hope he doesn't see what I did last week, what I did yesterday. I hope he doesn't see that thought. I hope he doesn't see what I said. I hope he doesn't see where I clicked on. I hope he doesn't see my history. And so we want to shrink back. But, but here's what that should do for the believer. On the contrary, knowing that Christ pierces through our hearts exposed before him, our mind exposed, our past our history exposed before him. He doesn't look at that and go, ooh. But he moves towards us with compassionate love and mercy and grace. He says, man, your shame, the thing that you want no one to know about you, man, I see it, give it to me. He nails it to the cross. He offers mercy. He offers forgiveness. He offers redemption, washing our crimson-stained life whiter than snow. That's what he does for us. Man, why would you reject this great salvation? And here's, here's something else that, that you guys need to hear as well, is, is that if you feel like you're failing or, or you keep stumbling over the same sin, same addiction, and, and you're at a place where you're like, man, I don't think I'm ever going to get past this. Like, it is a weight on me that I don't think I'll ever get through. Man, I think the fiery eyes of Jesus shows us that he is sanctifying his church. I read a book maybe over 10 years ago. I don't remember the author, so I'm just going to say this is me. Um, in the burning bush account, right, God speaks through the burning bush, and the bush itself was not burned, was not consumed. But think about every bug. Think about every fungus. Think about every pestilence around it. It must have been consumed. And so the fiery eyes of Jesus aren't done with you, man. He's going to burn up everything that isn't him. I love uh, when Michelangelo was asked about the inspiration for his sculpture, uh, David, which is in Italy to this day, about 500 years ago. They asked, how did you approach this? This big block marble. And, and he goes, 
that was easy. I just chipped away everything that wasn't David. Pretty simple, right? Fiery eyes of Christ are going to burn in us everything that is not him. Don't give up hope. We gotta move through this a little bit quicker. In his strength, he is permanent. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. This is speaking uh, to the fact that he is strong, solid, stable, and we are not. He's tireless to stride down the centuries, strong to trample down his enemies. Like one day, all of Christ's enemies are going to be under his feet. He's going to make them a footstool. And it's one thing to think about our comfy feet on the ottoman as we watch playoff football. It's another thing to think about these large, brass, burning feet of Jesus stomping on his enemies, right? This literature does something to us, or at least to me. In his declaration, he is powerful. Verse 15, in his voice was like the roar of many waters, like the thundering waves crashing on the island of Patmos, like the Niagara Falls rushing water, so is his voice with power. I remember uh, my first ocean experience uh, as a boy. Uh, my dad uh, took me and my siblings fishing, and I'm the baby in the family. Uh, and so apparently, uh, you go fishing when it's still dark outside. Uh, and, and so we get to the Galveston Wall, get out the car, and I hear the roar of the water. It's just Galveston. I get it, right? It's not California. Um, but those waves were, like, scary, especially in pitch black darkness. And so we grab everything, my dad grabs the, the, the equipment, and then he starts walking into the darkness, closer to the loud, scary noise. And I'm like, why are we doing that? We go down this pier, and it just gets louder and louder, and I'm terrified. I'm trying not to show that uh, to my brother. I don't know if he's here. Um, but, but I was terrified, and to kind of cap off that experience, I kid you not, there was a dude with a hook arm on the pier. And so I was like, I'm, I'm over this. Like, I'm done. If this is fishing, I don't want to do it. Um, can we go home and get a Happy Meal, uh, fish fillet, say we caught it, something different. But... Scripture says, Psalm 29, 3 through 4, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. For his servants, he is protective. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. In verse 20, we see um, that the stars represent angels of the churches, and, and it's debated whether that means uh, literal, like angelic creatures, or maybe messenger of the churches, to say the elders or pastors of these churches. Regardless, they're in his right hand, which basically tells us uh, they can't be snatched from it, right? No one takes the sheep from Jesus. He guards and he protects. In his judgments, he is perfect. Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The Tracian sword is probably what he's referring to here as long, broad, and heavy, sharp on both sides, double-edged. And it's coming from his mouth, uh, representing the word of God. Not a literal sword. This is talking about the word of God. And the word of God both cuts and cures. It hurts and it heals. Philip Hughes says this, if his word does not cut with the edge of salvation, it cuts with the edge of condemnation. 
The word of redemption to all who believe is at the same time the word of destruction to those who refuse to believe. Whichever way it's wielded, it is effective. And in his appearance, he is praiseworthy. Verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This speaks of his brilliance, holiness, majesty, awesomeness. Spurgeon describes this, him as being justly terrible to the ungodly and intensely joyful for those who trust in him. Intensely joyful. He's praiseworthy in his brightness. I want to ask the question, is he praiseworthy in your life? And before we might think to just say amen, we don't answer that question necessarily with words. We answer that question with how we live our lives. We answer that question on Monday morning when we go to work. We answer that question with how we interact with our spouse, how we raise our children, what we put first and foremost before us day in, day out. That's how we answer the question, is he praiseworthy in my life? The back half of this will be a lot briefer. Verses 17 through 20. Let's read on. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To see Jesus now in his glorified state while we, like John, still remain in our, in our sinful brokenness is more than we can bear, more than we can handle. He falls as though dead. First thing I ask anybody who claims to have seen a vision of Christ is, what was it like to die? Or how fearful were you? But Jesus touches him with his right hand and says, fear not, which literally means stop being afraid. Why? He answers with himself. I am the first and the last. He's saying, I am the absolute Lord of all. He starts and he finishes, and nothing is out of his sovereign control. I love how R.C. Sproul uh, describes the sovereignty of God. If you were to look at a speck of dust or the tiniest molecule walking or, or swaying through the light, like that thing, that small speck of dust, is moving everywhere it moves and falling where it falls according to God's sovereign control over it. And if that is the case, is he not sovereign over our lives as well? The sovereignty of God's not meant to make us frozen robots. It's meant to give us a robust Fearless faith that says it is his sovereignty that tells us his kingdom can advance. His sovereignty that tells us as we go out proclaiming the gospel, telling people about the good news, that there is a chance that they can repent and turn to him. Which, by the way, we're going to be doing that next Saturday. 
We're going to be going out, sharing bread with people, and sharing the gospel. Will you join us, 10 a.m. at Under Over Fellowship? Sin, death, and the grave have all been defeated for us by him. He died once and is alive forevermore. And because of that, because of his resurrection, you and I today have a hope in resurrected life. Though we face death, we can face it in confidence, knowing that as sure as he was resurrected, so will we be with him. Worship band, you guys can can go ahead and come up. He holds the key to death in Hades. Death, Death claims the body. Hades claims the soul, but not unless Jesus says so. Not Satan, not man, not anything else. Today, C3, what we've seen in this beautiful, exalted picture of Christ is that he is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our sovereign king, and he is the only one worthy of our worship, of our heart's affection, sovereign over his church and the world, and and we get to be a part of this, man. Are you still amazed at his grace towards you, at his grace towards the church? Are you on fire for his design for the church to be the light of the world? May this exalted Christ fuel your heart's affections, and may we live differently in light of this. May you have this exalted view of Christ with you day in, day out, unto eternity when we see him as he is fully. Let's pray.